party. Well, how cool is this, right? We're all back in person. First conference for me. I don't know about my fellow panelists here, but uh, it's good to see you guys. For sure. Great to see you. So everybody, welcome to the City versus Suburbs, How the Pandemic Changed Real Estate and Entrepreneurship. Today, we're going to be joined by Anna Mason. She is the partner of Rise of the Rest Seed Fund at Revolution. We have Garrett Bjorkman down the end, Managing Director of Portfolio Oversight at CIM Group, and Steve Glickman here to my left, founder and CEO of Develop. So let's jump straight into the questioning today. Obviously, the pandemic saw massive outward migration from cities, not only from suburbs, but to rural, less densely populated areas. Um, maybe, Steve, I start with you. Can you briefly highlight what you saw and what areas were most impacted by the inflow outflow um, of people? <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, I, I'm sure I can take a piece of that. I'm, Anna and Garrett, I think, can probably uh, give their perspective on it as well. But, um, you know, one of the programs I was uh, very involved with for a long time was the Opportunity Zone program, which was kind of based on this um, conceit that um, if people had an opportunity to move to more places than they're concentrated in now, and you gave them either an excuse or a reason not to be in the places they were, they would move. And I think one of the interesting things about, the, about COVID and the pandemic is, is that it's it sort of proven out at least a part of that thesis when if people could take a step back and see that their cities were the downside of the lifestyle of the places they were in, they would maybe start to naturally gravitate towards places where they grew up, where the standard of living was cheaper, where they were closer to family, where they had access to more green space and you know housing that was more affordable. And I think you've seen that not just in the way people have moved um, to not just to suburbs, but really to less um, happening cities all over the country, but also in, in terms of the way they've looked at their jobs and the job market and what kind of life they want for themselves. And so I think what the moment we're in is so interesting because the question is, will it stick? Mm -hmm. Will people eventually go back to cities and resume that same quality of life from before the pandemic? Or will this move be permanent? Will this lead to talent permanently relocating? Will it lead to businesses starting up in those places? And in some ways, everyone on the stage has made big bets that that was gonna happen either through incentives or in this case, because we've radically changed the equation of what it is to live in a big concentrated city post-COVID. Yeah, so Anna, to you, you come from an, a venture capital background, more of an entrepreneurial sort of focus. Have you seen the same types of trends here and especially around talent? Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I've, I've taken to uh, somewhat affectionately referring to um, this movement that's unfolding as the great unbundling of place. Um, and so the way I've been thinking about this is very much so informed by the work that we do at Rise of the Rest for higher volume, early stage venture capital investors. And by mandate, uh, we focus on investing in opportunities everywhere in the country as long as those companies are not headquartered in Silicon Valley, New York City, or Boston. And so as the conversations unfolded, as reality has unfolded um, through these last now nearly 20 months of COVID, and you were looking at everyone moving out of New York, everyone moving out of San Francisco, and there was this clamor in this sense that, oh my goodness, so much is changing so quickly. There's this great acceleration. Obviously, we think it's great for um, 
our strategy and our fund thesis, um, and I'll talk about this more later, I think both by anecdote and by data, we did see quite um, a meaningful increase in volume in terms of deal flow um, and investment in cities all across the country. But what's so interesting when you actually um, peel back uh, the layers of layers of the onion on this data is that the the shifts in migration um, between cities actually hasn't, this was fascinating to me, functionally hasn't moved that much mm. post-COVID versus pre-COVID. So I think some of the data I saw actually said that there were, um, according to the U.S. Postal Service, there were about 30 million address changes registered in 2020 as things were really moving around during COVID. And uh, there were people moving out of the Valley, there were people moving out of New York, and they were going to Austin and going to Denver and going to Miami. Um, and so there was an acceleration, but functionally, the the shift, the um, the data that you were seeing was very similar in 2020 to what you were seeing in 2019. There was this great quote where someone said, um, you know, the data shows that the next Austin is probably Austin. Um, and so what's interesting about that, um, and I'm looking forward to talking about this more later, is I think the biggest shift um, was in the intentionality and the focus that people now have on these opportunities. And this, for me, comes back to this idea of the great unbundling of place. People were moving before, so, you know, some people were just moving from city to suburbs, some people were moving to more rural um, areas or smaller um, MSA cities. But now what you have happening, and I actually think this is functionally really what I would call an infrastructure um, opportunity and solution set is that um, the package deal of place where you had to think about where you live and where you work and the fact that those would, um, you would just expect that those would fit together functionally no is no longer the case. Mm -hmm. Now you can think about where you want to live and separately you can think about where you want to work. And the intentionality that I think now is being placed around that both in terms of technology communities all across the country and increasingly cities all across the country um, where they say, oh, now we can really market our city with intention. We yep. can market the value prop of our startup with intention. That's where I really think you're starting to see some cities that functionally have been building for many years mm -hmm. really start to break out from the pack. So everyone in this room is going to obviously know Miami is going to be you know, an example, they've done a great job in branding, but other unexpected places um, like Tampa, just across the state or Tulsa in an unexpected place like Oklahoma right. more. So we'll talk more about that. Absolutely. Um, as we go so, on. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. So Garrett, you, you guys at CIM obviously have deep expertise, long-term expertise in this. So you, you saw trends very well established pre-COVID or pre-pandemic and we're focused on secondary markets anyway and develop them, developing them to be attractive locations. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen pre and, and post pandemic? Yeah, sure. So, so at CIM, we manage approximately $30 billion of real estate infrastructure, primarily in the US. And I would say over the past five to seven years, um, we very intentionally were investing in a lot of the secondary cities that we really believe have been having an urban renaissance, right? Austin, Phoenix, um, Dallas, Miami, Atlanta. Uh, we saw demographic trends uh, in those areas that for, they really had the long-term fundamentals based on employment and demographic trends 
um, to we you know, believe would have carried those uh, cities forward and outperform most of the major other submarkets within the country. And what we noticed from a lot of the demographic trends is, and this was pre pre COVID, there was really only two um, areas where we saw out migration, um, and that was from uh, primarily San Francisco and uh, New York. And when we looked further into that and said, what is really the cause of why are people making this decision? A lot of it came down to housing affordability. And um, so, you know, it's just an interesting thing to note because I think as you, as you look at, at, you know, what's happening in a lot of the major cities, um, there's still a lot to be desired to live uh, and work uh, in, a, in a city, right? Um, people love the, the density of um, talent. Uh, that density of talent brings about, um, you know, in certain cases, high incomes. It brings about certain amenities that come along with those types of incomes. Uh, and it affords people a certain lifestyle um, that you can't have outside of a city where you have that density. And so, um, you know, of course, there's been real trends with people who have moved to many of these secondary cities, right? But when you actually look at where are people moving when they go to the secondary cities, they're not moving to the suburbs. They're going to Austin. They want to be downtown. If you're in Phoenix, you want to be downtown or close to downtown, right? Um, so so those have been the trends that, that we saw pre-COVID, and they were really just uh, accelerated. Uh, during COVID and and today, although you know if, if you are in the the real estate market in in uh, New York, uh, for example, you're starting to see rents come back very quickly. I mean, there's no more concessions. Uh, that market is very much robust. Condo sales have picked up again, so you are seeing a lot of domestic activity happening again. We haven't really seen the international capital come back which I think is the one dynamic that once that happens, it will really bring activity back to New York. Um, but for San Francisco, I think it's going to be a much, much longer trend, partially just because of the nature of the businesses that are in San Francisco. Um, that's That's been our observations. Yeah, so the one thing I'm getting from what you've all said is there's a real acceleration of trends that were established or in place beforehand um, through the pandemic. And we've seen that in different industries like technology and all that kind of stuff. So Steve, turning back to you, so you were instrumental in developing the Qualified Opportunity Zone program um, that sought to you know, direct capital and help those areas of the country that fell behind after the uneven recovery out of the global financial crisis. Can you talk a little bit about the, what the program details are, just to make sure everyone's on the same page here, and discuss whether um, the pandemic sort of has helped accelerate interest and focus on those areas? So, for sure. So, um, the Opportunity Zone program, you know, really simply is a program that incentivizes long-term investment, usually 10 years or longer, in communities that are... Um, uh, considered low income and have been selected by governors and mayors all around the country to be focal points uh, for investment in economic activity. And the program is really tied to capital gains. So it takes unrealized capital gains, of which there's about $6 trillion in the economy. And the idea is to funnel some amount of that uh, every year when those gains are realized into opportunities in these communities and into a lot of cities that have been off the radar screen. Um, I think 
you know, this program has been controversial, and I think it's it's useful to talk about the controversy of it. Maybe not right now, but but before we uh, before we uh, finish up today. But I'd I'd say one of the things that the program set out to do was to drive a lot of capital to create a big capital market, and we have pretty good tax data now on 2019, the first real year on the program. And that tax data have, has shown that there was about $25 billion invested into Opportunity Zone funds around the country. One of the interesting things about that capital, and I think this surprised a lot of people, was it was invested through 2,500 funds, and it was invested in 1,500 communities. So there's a bit of a, of a stereotype of Opportunity Zones that it's just going to a couple cities. And we know that's not true. We know it's pretty geographically diverse. We know it's not controlled by the largest fund managers, although a lot of them, like CIM and others, have funds that are active and large. And we know it's changing kind of the mindset of not just investors, but more importantly, people who live in communities who are organizing around this idea that there's equity capital coming and then there's follow-on capital coming you know, because of that, whether it's philanthropic dollars or it's debt financing or it's businesses or other things. So something about that is working. And I think one of the interesting things, at least, and this is my kind of core view of what's happening in the country, the current makeup, the current kind of hardening of where people who and businesses go is a really bad outcome for the country, not just for cities that are depressed, but for cities that are prosperous and, as Garrett pointed out, extremely expensive to live in. Normal people who with normal jobs can't live in Manhattan. They can't live in San Francisco. It costs a million dollars to buy a one-bedroom condo. That's not a good outcome for people who live in those cities. also not a good outcome for people who live in other communities where the businesses have fled to follow that capital. So we need some kind of rejiggering, whether it happens as a result of tax measures or it happens across, as a result of cyclical or structural changes. That's really important for the country. And that kind of driving of ensuring that there's a larger amount of places in the country that can support pretty robust dynamic economies is a complicated question, but a lot of it is a mindset. There's no reason why places like Detroit and places like Birmingham, Alabama, and places like Philadelphia, all places that have done really well um, in both the Opportunity Zone program in terms of capturing capital, can't be robust big economies. In fact, many of those places were really robust, uh, really competitive economies in the 50s and 60s and 70s when the manufacturing kind of revolution was towards its peak or just before the tech revolution next. So a lot of this is man-made, whether people are fleeing California because it's expensive or because the tax code there is widely out of step with the rest of the country is a man-made problem, whether people are want to diversify their economy so it's not just about one sector, but it's a diverse amount of sectors and it's technologically enabled and there's access to broadband is a choice we make. And so a lot of these are about our choices and the question is, are we willing to make different ones as a society, as a government? And as individuals, where we choose where to live and where to invest. So you talk about a really interesting point there, which is like the infrastructure to, to support this and the economies. And Garrett, I want to come to you eventually. But Anna, just before we do that, you know, you, you, you look at the equitable distribution of capital when it comes to venture dollars. And you've noted that 75% of venture dollars end up in Northern California, New York, or Massachusetts. So you guys are focused on everything else. Have you seen a change in where those capital dollars are going to? And now that we have the technology infrastructure to support the reimagination of different industries in the venture space, especially? 
The short answer is yes, but since I'm up here, I will give a longer answer. Right. Um, so for the past um, oh, probably seven, eight years, even as more capital has been distribu- has been uh, distributed and allocated and invested in venture as an asset class, from, you know, about a dozen years ago when there was maybe 10 to 20 billion. Um, oh, hi, guys. <laughs> when there was about Everyone a, has to leave the club now, apparently. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, when there was, uh, you know, between 10 and 20 billion going into venture as an asset class, two years ago, you had 100 to 125 billion flowing in, uh, flowing into the class. And this past year, 2020, um, uh, you had close to 160 billion flow in. So there's been tremendous growth in the asset class as a whole, which I think is incredibly exciting when you think about the opportunity and the possibility on the other side of investing in entrepreneurs. Um, but what's happened is that there's been a very disproportionate allocation to that capital that has been very unevenly distributed to the tune of about 75% in California, New York, and Massachusetts. When you look at the flip side of that, you think about the, you know, the public markets and, and what happens on the other end of tech, um, it's about that same percentage, about 75 plus percent of the Fortune 500 isn't located in California, New York, and Massachusetts. It's actually pretty evenly distributed all across the country, everywhere else, or in what we would think of as the rest. So for us, this, this mandate um, and this investment focus, really, frankly, an arbitrage opportunity um, to find those next future Fortune 500 companies means you have to be looking where most people aren't necessarily looking. And so that's why for so long we've been focused and banging the drum on the opportunity for early stage investment all across the country. And so what does the data tell us? Um, what's been pretty exciting is that um, over the last 10 years or so, you, at the early stage of venture capital, what we would call seed and series A, really company formation and starting to, to get out of the gate and show some progress, um, there's actually been a 15% decline in the percentage of investment capital that's gone to the Bay Area. And what's most exciting to us as we think about how um, the landscape has shifted and accelerated over the last 15 to 20 months is that half of that um, decline um, has actually come in the last in the last year and a half. So you're really starting to see this acceleration and this momentum at early stage. It hasn't fully played out. You're still going to look at the headline data and you're still going to see 75% um, go to those three places. Um, but there, there's a trickle-down effect. And so it's happening at the early stages. And anecdotally, um, I think why it's happening is because the working environment and the fully remote work environment in the venture and tech community over the last 15 to 20 months has afforded so many investors the opportunity to just have some self-reflection and to realize that you don't actually have to be down, quote, quote unquote, down the street um, from the companies that you're investing in, and that you can um, you can look elsewhere, you can broaden your horizons. and. At the early stages, you know, I think venture investing sort of sits at the nexus of access and context. And any Valley investor, any New York investor can get access to any of these places. But importantly, these last 15 to 20 months have given people the opportunity um, to seek out that context. So, you know, just to close with this quick anecdote, um, which has always amused me, you know, we had a great Valley investor looking to lead a, a subsequent round of a company we're invested in. Um, he's like, so, you know, tell me more about it. I'm really, I love the technology. I love the founders. But I don't know, Cincinnati, like, what's the tech scene like there? Is there really a startup community? I just, I'm not sure I can get comfortable with the ecosystem risk. And I was like, well, 
the company's based in Columbus, not Cincinnati. Um, but let me tell you about that and, and how great it is. And at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter if it's Cincinnati or Columbus because less than 1% of venture capital goes to Ohio. So the fact that now this investor, and he did end up leading the deal, is investing in Ohio, you know, the anecdote, I think, matches and marries the data of the acceleration that we're seeing in early stage. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so, Garrett, over to you. So there's obviously been a big change in the focus of the types of property being developed and, and you guys go in and you're going to revitalize areas um, and, and bring in not just, you know, multifamily property, but think about the ecosystem you're building around. There has been a shift in focus of property types. I mean, we've all heard about the death of the brick and mortar store. Like, are you seeing that in the types of demand for property or the properties that you guys are looking to develop? Yeah, I mean... It, Yes, right. The 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 I would say retail. The story there is is has been the same story for a very long time, right? I think one of the underlying questions that we're all kind of circling around is really what is the impact of work from home, right? This whole city versus suburbs question is how does work from home actually impact uh, commerce and how we interact with each other uh, from a work perspective on a in a, on a daily life. And, um, you know, so office, right? How is, how is office changed? And I think when you, when you talk to um, most senior management, when you talk to leasing brokers throughout the country, um, there is a, a very strong desire in corporate America to bring people back to the office and to bring them back quickly. Um, now, that's for a certain segment of the market. I think more that 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 sentiment is much stronger in people on the front office and people where in industries where innovation and creativity and collaboration are um, really the, the centerpiece of what makes their job uh, successful. But, um, you know, we're seeing it even in, in accounting and things like that. There's been studies done where productivity is substantially less in a work from home environment than at work. And so you've seen, you know, the big banks, um, you know, there's been major shifts uh, to bring people back to the office. Um, but I think the question is, how does the relationship in the office change, right? What we've seen is that companies are investing tremendous amounts of dollars into social space, right? And redefining the way that the office interaction works. Um, the amount of dollars that tenants are requesting for uh, you know, TIs to build out, you know, kitchens, they want to keep people there and make it more attractive for them to be at the office than to be uh, at their house, right? So there's this massive competition taking place among employers to make their office uh, the best because it's a way to attract the talent um, and, and at the same time, keep productivity high. But you know, our view in long term is that office remains a substantial, uh, you know, asset class and that is critically important for, um, you know, business to, to continue and that the innovation and mentoring and all of those types of things uh, that, that really make a, a business successful, you can't do remotely. I and mean, we, we, we've tried it. Um, and so, you know, while there is this shift, I think, to secondary cities, um, the real question will be, uh, is there going to be enough talent in those uh, secondary cities um, and are employers big enough to drive, um, you know, people to those cities? 
Uber recently announced, you know, they were going to move a substantial amount of employees to Dallas. They recently pulled out. And, and uh, that's not to say there's plenty of other tenants looking for space in Dallas, right? But there's a lot of political dynamics. There were people who they had moved to Dallas who just weren't happy in that environment. So I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, we are looking at, at, at different asset classes. Multifamily continues to be robust. Um, but from an office perspective, I think that's really the biggest question. Mm -hmm. But it's about how do people going to use this space, then, yep. if they're going to use it at all. Well, I want to delve into the local level um, a, a part of the conversation. And Anna, you had mentioned um, last week when we were chatting that cities are startups. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I, I first started thinking about um, cities as startups when I considered how many tech communities across the country were branding themselves. Um, and and so you would find I would find Silicon Harbor and Silicon Holler and Silicon Slopes and Silicon Prairie, and it just you know for the work that we do um, we have a parallel track where we're in, investing in a high volume of early stage startups and we're also from an economic development standpoint engaged with these startup communities all across the country. So you kind of parallel track the um, uh, some of the pattern matching between how the cities and communities were acting and how the startups were acting. And I was thinking, oh, you know, all these cities were saying, where I call it Silicon X syndrome. Uh, it's very similar to an early stage startup that hasn't necessarily found um, its footing, perhaps its product market fit. And so they say, I'm the Uber for X or I'm the Facebook for Y because it becomes a shorthand. So having the Silicon X moniker, I think for many, um, somewhat still nascent startup communities across the country, it was a shorthand to say, hey, look at us, there's technology and innovation happening here. Um, and and I think part of what we're seeing now, we were absolutely seeing this um, for the last number of years in communities all across the country from uh, Minneapolis to Indianapolis, Columbus and beyond, is that um, you started having, like startups, where you, you have some that break out. You started to really have some communities that would break out, too. Um, and you see this most acutely, I think, in how certain cities and communities are responding um, to COVID because it's, it's very much so um, rapid-paced, three-dimensional chess. And to this point, it's interesting, Garrett, like how how you're thinking about this talent question. Is there actually talent in these communities? If you go back to this... Um, you know, sort of framework that a city is like a startup. You, know, you talked a little bit about brand and, you know, moving away from, hey, Silicon X to now we're going to brand and define ourselves in a very specific and unique way that ties to um, uh, really the core DNA of our city and why we're different, not why we're a copycat of Silicon Valley. Um, but then I think there's this really exciting moment for what I think of as like community infrastructure and why it's not just going to be, um, you know, I, I hope and I think for many cities, this fleeting moment of people moving, everybody ran to Miami, but like, eh, now the weather's nice, they're going to come back mm -hmm. to New York. Um, I think you see cities, and frankly, I would absolutely count Miami among them, who are investing infrastructure. They've they've done the branding thing. Frankly, I think they've they've taken a really fascinating page out of a startup playbook to say, we're not a B2B business anymore in terms of how we acquire customers. Every city, every mayor should be thinking about their citizens as customers. And I think you're starting to see that. And that's a big change that's accelerated because of COVID. Um, but now you, now that you can say, oh, we can directly acquire our consumers, 
so to speak, because people can live anywhere, they can work anywhere. Um, let's go after the people themselves, the employees themselves, instead of the companies from an economic development play. And now infrastructure is really going to be critical. Everything from affordable housing. You don't want to price local people out of the existing market. You want the rising tide of um, a startup community to really lift all boats, including those who've been doing the hard work and investing for many years. Um, so, so that's what I mean when I say cities are like startups. Yep. I think it's just a framework um, to think about um, uh, development, infrastructure, and, and functionally growth, because every city is is going after what every startup is going after. They want to make more money, they want to be better than the competition, um, and they want to have lasting success. So let's talk about the, the citizens themselves, Steve, and this is, this is near and dear to your heart um, specifically. Like, what impact has the shift had on the intracity issues such as inequality, homelessness, you know, regular jobs for regular people? Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact there? Well, first, let's just say the intercity question of why people live or want to be in uh, San Francisco or New York compared to uh, Detroit or elsewhere are different, although there are some overlap between the intra-city issues, where, frankly, if you look at inequality, the, the biggest inequality, the most shocking figures are actually neighborhoods within cities, where you have a five-year, for example, life expectancy gap between the lowest income neighborhoods that could be right next door to higher income neighborhoods. And what's most shocking about the intercity question is that it's really solvable, and everybody knows what the solution is. The inter the intercity question is complex. It involves attracting talent and businesses and tax codes and industry and infrastructure. It requires a lot. It's almost easy to throw up your hands and say, there's nothing we can do about it. It just sort of is what it is, which is also not true, but closer to being true than the intercity question, which if you heard one theme, I think, from everything we've talked about, boils down to housing. If you want housing to be cheaper, there's one answer that I think everyone knows. What do you do? You build more housing, period. The answer is really easy. It's supply and demand. Housing will be really expensive if there's not a lot of it. It will be much cheaper if there's more of it. And that means building housing not just in poorer communities, but building housing in wealthier communities. Now, I consider myself a political progressive. I think. <laughs> Hard to tell these days. Distance from my time in the, in the Democratic administration. But the cities that we're talking about, the, the biggest inequality are, I think, self-described politically progressive. And it's the problem, the drivers are just as much in the wealthy part of those cities, if not more so, than the poorer parts of those cities. You need to build housing everywhere. We have a huge housing crisis in the country. It's not because there's not money there for investment. The biggest asset class growth in, in the real estate space is by far multifamily. I mean, that is what's been burning all the way through COVID and the pandemic. It's, it's the vast majority, if not almost all, of the investment that's going in through opportunity zones, which are this $25 billion subset of distressed community investing. Investors want to invest in multifamily because they know there's a consistent demand for it. People who live in cities don't want to build it. There's a, there's a theme around gentrification, which is mostly not true. Almost all research around gentrification shows that the people that gentrification most helps are younger people, children, in communities that have access to better schools, both in terms of primary schooling, better access to college education, less crime in their communities. It's what every parent wants for their kids in every community in every country. And the only way you get there is by investing and building more, creating more housing, more housing options across the, the spread. Same thing in wealthy communities. You have to build multifamily in wealthy communities. It can't just be single family. 
Otherwise, there's not enough housing for people. People are priced out of the market. People have to leave. Only wealthy people can live there, and it perpetuates inequality. So we have the answer. We just have to want to enable it in our own communities. That's where it starts. It's not something some, you know, politician, some unnamed you know, NGO or philanthropy has to solve for, you know, if we can solve it, if we want to fix this problem. So I'm very much in the spirit. One, my theme here, if nothing else, is agency. We have agency to fix this very sticky problem in our own communities by just building more housing. Yep. Okay. Excellent there. So, so Garrett, at, at the local level, you guys work specifically, and we're running up on time here, um, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about how you work with local governments and um, organizations to develop out property? Yeah, sure. So I, I would say one very successful um, effort that we've had has been in uh, the city of Atlanta um, with a project that used to be known as the Gulch. Um, but we acquired you know, over years uh, about 55 acres uh, in downtown Atlanta and worked very closely with the city and state to get tax, uh, uh, different tax incentives that would effectively not just allow us to be incentivized to develop in that area, uh, but also other developers uh, to, to be incentivized to develop in that area. And it's been a you know part of, of Atlanta that people have been trying to activate for I mean, 20 plus years uh, with, with no success, but we really built a coalition and thought about how do we kind of master plan this, this whole city uh, in a way um, to, you know, provide uh, for a very active, vibrant lifestyle, while at the same time addressing many of the issues that Steve just brought up. So, you know, getting incentives uh, that allow us to develop affordable, making sure that we have enough housing uh, in the right types of housing, um, but, but working with the, the state and, and uh, local governments to get those incentives were absolutely critical, um, you know, in order to, to make that happen. Excellent. And we're just on one minute left here. So I want to put a very fine, each of you to put a very fine point on what you've talked about um, already today. Um, Steve, I'll start with you. So have we seen the great talent redistribution as a result of the pandemic? No, we, we haven't. We haven't seen the great re redistribution, but we have this moment now where people are, I think, can make a, a different decision being separated from life and business as usual pre-pandemic. And that's what do they want? What is their power to convince their companies not to go back to the office, to enable them to work for home, to live in more places, to be with near their family, to be near green spaces? I think this is going to be a very telling moment for American society, but I don't think we've seen it yet. Okay. Anna? From a tech and entrepreneurship perspective, I think the fundamental change um, that COVID has induced is less about talent redistribution, though I think I would say yes, and that that's incredibly exciting. But I actually think it's more about the boost and the shot in the arm that entrepreneurship has gotten overall. And um, I think you know the, the final point I would leave everyone with is that in 2020, we saw um, a historic high in the country of uh, new business creation and new business starts up about 15% from what we've been seeing over the last couple of years and very different than what we saw in the Great Recession. So as we sit here and we look 10 years from now, where do we think we're going to be? I think the um, spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship um, that is perhaps more alive and well now than it was in the past decade um, is really going to be what pays dividends. And hopefully we see that more evenly distributed all across the country. Brilliant. Garrett, take us home. 
So uh, not to not to steal a word from uh, our Fed chairman, but it appears that the talent shift is maybe transitory uh, in the in the short term over the long term, unless cities uh, really invest in their local economies and safety and transportation and housing. Um, there's going to be a lot more change. Brilliant. Well, on behalf of everyone who joined, Steve, Anna, Garrett, thanks for taking the time out today. Thank you. Thank you.